distinguished speakers, ladies and gentlemen, and cher Nicolette. Uh, it means a lot to me to say a few words about uh, Maurice Fraser here at his alma mater, which was so dear to his heart. This event shows, as if, it, there, as if there were any need, how vividly and fully is remembered by, the, by his friends, colleagues, and students, and also how much he inspired us and I, I will, I am sure, continue to inspire us for decades to come. Maurice Fraser was a great friend and advisor to, to successive, sorry, French ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> he combined an unshakable intellectual integrity with unfailing courtesy. He would fight his corner in debates, but always attacking his opponent's arguments, never the opponents themselves, and always with a scrupulous regard for the evidence. He had a way of explaining in detail his standpoint on an issue, which always earned him our greatest respect. <coughs> I learned very quickly that he was someone to really listen to, as it was he who explained to me ahead of the British general elections who would win and exactly why. And of course he was right. <laughs> Morris was a true gentleman and a complete one-off. Very charismatic, thoughtful, mischievous at times, and immensely witty. He always seemed to me to have an old-fashioned generosity of spirit and a broad-mindedness that is increasingly rare. His lifelong European commitments and great contribution to Franco-British relations were impressive, and sadly, those qualities are now in short supply at a crucial time for the UK and the EU. Among other things, Maurice was a staunch supporter of the Franco-British Council's work and a member for over 15 years. Despite his busy life, he was always ready to drop what he was doing, and he provided endless advice and guidance on the right speaker for a seminar or the most effective approach to potential funders. I consider it an honor to have known him, albeit briefly, and his passing is a great loss to my French colleagues and to the diplomatic, academic, and political communities. I am now very happy to hand over to our eminent speakers. They will be discussing a philosophy <coughs> concerned with finding the self and the meaning of life through free will, choice, and personal responsibility, a school of thought to which French philosophers are noted for bringing most international in attention in the 20th century. What a fitting choice to honor Maurice's memory. Thank you. Thank you, Sylvie. Uh, my name is Shahida Bari. I'm one of the fellows of the Forum for European Philosophy. Uh, and we hope that you really enjoy this evening and come along to lots of our events if you aren't already attending them. This event is called Existentialism is Easy. Uh, today I was thinking that the title of the event ought to have been Existentialism Made Easy, colon, or your money back. But this event is free, of course, so that put a kibosh on my money-making ambitions. But more in the playful spirit of Morris, I think, actually. Um, instead, our ambitions tonight, again in the spirit of Morris, 
are nobly philosophical. Um, the title is facetious in one respect because it speaks to a particular experience of reading the work of writers like Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Albert Camus and Martin Heidegger, which is this writing can be technical, it can be abstract or opaque even, but it is also penetrating and it rings true and authentically to our own experience for many of us. Um, and often these writers articulate something about our own experience which we've never been able to quite articulate on our own terms. The three panellists here today are going to share their own experience of reading and understanding existential thought. Uh, the panellists are Sarah Bakewell, author of How to Live on the Essayist Montaigne and winner of a National Book Critics Circle Award and the Duff Cooper Prize. Her most recent book is At the Existentialist Cafe, Freedom, Being and Apricot Cocktails. Andy Martin is lecturer in the Department of French at the University of Cambridge. He writes for the Stone Philosophy column in the New York Times and for the Independent. He's author of The Boxer and the Goalkeeper, Sartre vs. Camus, 2012. Stella Sanford is Professor of Modern European Philosophy at Kingston University. She's a member of the Radical Philosophy Editorial Collective and has written politically on philosophy, psychoanalysis and feminist thought. She's the author of How to Read, uh, Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, the three speakers will have ten minutes each. Uh, I'll take a moment to pose a question after each speaker, instead of piling up the papers, but we, I promise you we will open up to the floor as soon as we can. So with no further ado, Sarah, you're going to start us off. Thanks very much, and um, thanks everyone for, for coming along. Um, existentialism made easy is... Um, I thought I'd better start addressing that or making it easy or making it difficult or whatever else is, is required by a kind of a question which I've read books about existentialism which never actually answer this question, which is, what is existentialism anyway? Um, and I think the reason why they never answer the question or ask it or even sort of think to define it is probably because it's almost impossible to define it in any way that would satisfy everybody or satisfy every existentialist. I mean, there's a fundamental problem with the whole starting point of that, which is that part of being an existentialist is not wanting to have labels stuck on you. So labelling yourself an existentialist is a bit of a non-starter. It's a kind of logical contradiction. And indeed, most of the people that we associate with existentialism denied being existentialists, um, at least for a while. Um, the ones who eventually gave in and said, oh, OK, we're existentialists then, were Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. And that was more because they didn't want to sort of... They got fed up with, with trying to deny it, and they thought we might as well just accept it. <laughs> um, so what is it? I mean, I wonder it's difficult with, with everybody kind of not seeming to want to be one. Um, <laughs> but it's... Uh, um, I think that you, it's not a question you can avoid. So um, where does it all start? Well, I think it, 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 the crucial thing is, the, is there in the word existentialism is a philosophy that starts from existence. And that means really distinctively human existence. It doesn't just mean whatever happens to be lying around. It means for each one of us, my existence. So it's a personal existence. So it's a philosophy that, that you actually have to kind of face up to in yourself and, and live and, and do, um, rather than one that you simply define in a set of um, sort of um, definitions. I want to define the set of definitions. It doesn't make much sense. But it's not a philosophy that you lay out in the form of, of a treatise with, with points. It's a philosophy that you 
kind of bring into being by doing it. Um, so it's, it's a philosophy of my personal existence. And what human existence turns out to be about, at least for Sartre, say, and Simone de Beauvoir, is um, about what you make yourself into by the choices that you make, by the actions that you do. Um, a human being doesn't have a set identity, a set essence. Um, this pen... How long do philosophers have to sit around before they start talking about tables and pens? And <laughs> Pieces of chalk. This, yeah. you know... This, I, one day I should just say, this camel, and then leave one on just to make it a bit different. But this pen doesn't really have a choice about whether to be a pen or not. Um, it just is there. It's, it simply sits there fulfilling the essence of what a pen is. It's been designed to be a pen, um, but the same thing is true of things that are just there in the natural world. You know, a, um, a, a door, it, well, it's not there in the natural world. A tree is just, it is what it is. It doesn't wake up in the morning thinking, how exactly am I going to be a tree today? What kind of treeness am I going to, what, what treeful things am I going to do? Um, what kind of tree am I going to be? And yet that is so fundamental to what a human being is that for an existentialist um, of the Jean-Paul Sartre type, the Simone de Beauvoir type at least, that is, um, the, very, that is the only essence of what it is to be a human being. Uh, Sartre put that with the very catchy phrase, um, existence precedes essence, which is so brilliant and catchy that um, it unfortunately takes about, you know, 800 pages to explain <laughs> what he means by it. Um, so um, it starts from there, um, and of course it soon gets on to freedom, because if it's up to me what kind of a being I'm going to be, then you know, it's, it, that's actually very scary. And so we rapidly go from existence um, is, human existence is what, we ma- is what we make of it, to... <coughs> and therefore I'm free, and then we go immediately to, and therefore I'm responsible for what kind of being I am, and then we go rapidly from that into anxiety and dread and all these other things that we associate with existentialism. Um, but it, we also get quite quickly into a kind of exhilaration, a kind of you know, immense possibility, and those two things, the anxiety that comes with total freedom and total responsibility and the, um, the huge sense of possibility are always intertwined in, in the story of existentialism. Um, it makes it a philosophy that I think was particularly um, suitable for its time. You know, It emerged out of the wartime years, out of the post-war world, at a time when... I mean, the thing that always comes back to my mind, which both Camus and Sartre referred to in essays, is that once the atom bomb had arrived after Hiroshima humanity literally had to decide freely each day whether it wanted to um, survive or not, it's up to us, it's up to us what we do these are very powerful thoughts and um, very again scary ones but it also is, it opens up the, the recognition that to be human is to have these, these possibilities so that's that's the, kind of, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about. This is no ordinary philosophy. Um, it's no particularly co- coherent philosophy because it soon opens up into being, um, how do you interpret that? What is freedom? It, how is our freedom curtailed? Can we blame our, our background or our social situation for any of, of what we are? I mean, it seems a bit extreme to say that we can't, we can't uh, 
put anything in the responsibility of, say, our parents or our economic situation. Um, but but that it always keeps circling back to that. It's it's to be human is to be um, to exist in that special sense that means to be free. Um, what am I? How am I doing in terms of time? Oh, three I have minutes that, left. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to sort of bring in something else, which is a little bit more um, kind of in at a tangent, but that's a more difficult concept in some ways to, to grasp. I mean, some of you probably know all about it already, and you're thinking, God, you know, she's treating us like idiots. No, I'm not. <laughs> Phenomenology. I just like saying the words, so I can. <laughs> um, Something happened when the existentialist tradition, which after all goes well back into the 19th century in terms of all this angst and anguish and freedom, um, something happened when that met a very different tradition which came out of Germany, and this was basically a new philosophical method which was um, rooted in the idea of uh, not trying to sort of ascertain whether things really exist or not or whether I am really a certain kind of um, entity as a conscious being, but, but... just simply starting from our experience of what seems to be reality, so starting from this, stripping away all the ideas about what things might or might not be in reality, and just starting from right now. I have to tell you a story that uh, makes a bit more sense out of that, which was the moment in which, according to Simone de Beauvoir, um, she and Jean-Paul Sartre discovered this whole idea, was when uh, they were very young still, they were both working as school teachers um, in provincial towns and they were pretty unhappy about, about that, wanted to do something a bit more exciting. But they occasionally got a chance to uh, meet up in Paris. They'd been going out together for about um, sort of what, three years, three or four years. And on one of these occasions they met up in Paris and they also met up with an old school friend of Sartre's called Raymond Aron, also became, became very famous himself. But they were all young, and Aaron had been studying in Germany for a year in Berlin, and he was telling them all about this, these new ideas that he'd discovered. And the big one was this phenomenology, and he'd said um, they were sitting around and they were drinking apricot cocktails, according to Simone de Beauvoir, and it, to try and communicate what he meant by phenomenology, he said, you see, my, my little friend, my old friend... Um, if you're a phenomenologist, you can talk about this cocktail and make, phenom- make philosophy out of it. And according to the way that Simone de Beauvoir remembered it later, this was Sartre went sheet white and with excitement and he r- rushed off to the nearest bookshop, um, which if you've seen pictures of Sartre, you know, you're, sort of, you're not really talking about athletic strides, you're talking about... Give me, and he went in, give me everything you have on phenomenology, which turned out to be this one slim volume by Emmanuel Levinas um, on a very quite technical aspect of of phenomenology. But uh, Sartre was so eager to read it that he ripped it open, ripped the pages open, because they still came uncut at that time, as he was walking down the street so that he could um, digest it, Um, which he did. And he then went off to Berlin himself, studied there for a year, came back to France, and what he brought with him was, I think, the, the distinctively 20th century existentialism, which was quite different because it merged that tradition with all the freedom and anguish stuff with a tradition of how you do philosophy, and you do philosophy in a way that is about trying to precisely describe how the world presents itself to you, how you experience the world, and to focus on that experience, and, but to describe it rigorously and precisely it has to be said that he also changed it somewhat in the course of adapting phenomenology. So what had started as a fairly um, 
arid, not arid, but a rather austere kind of German philosophy. Once Sartre got his hands on it and brought it back, it suddenly turned into this philosophy of, you know, the, yes, the apricot cocktails, but also the, the waiter who serves it and the certain angle that he bends as, as he pours your cocktail, the, um, the flirtation that you might be having with the people that you're sitting at the table with sharing the cocktail, the mood of, of nausea or boredom or, um, you know, worrying about the kind of impression that you're making on the other person, um, strange sort of how the glass feels as you pick it up but with a sort of hallucinogenic quality he started he did an experiment with mescaline and started having acid flashbacks which had a certain effect on his philosophy as well but above all he, he wrote about sex which is something that the the phenomenologists had basically not had sort of forgotten or didn't see as being a crucial part of philosophy and Sartre did and he so suddenly sex was rearing its ugly head all over, or its beautiful head all over, <laughs> its, all over his philosophy. Um, and that uh, probably had a little bit to do with why it suddenly became extremely fashionable. Thank I'll thank stop there, I think. Yeah. I, I think we can strongly recommend the apricot cocktails but we ought not to sanction the mescaline. Um, Actually, I, I'm not so sure. I've tried quite a few apricot cocktails, and I think maybe mescaline is a better idea. You heard it here, or not? Um, okay, so my, my question for you is... Uh, so we have to strongly plug all of your books, which are being sold outside, but this is a fabulous read, partly because uh, existentialism, as you describe it, has these... Wonderful, starry, charismatic creatures, Sartre, Meloponti, uh, de Beauvoir, Camus. But then also, you discover as you go along, there is this equally starry, smaller constellation behind them. So um, Richard Wright appears, Levin, as you mentioned, Richard Aron. Um, but you retail, re- recount one of the stories about the entrance exam to the École Normale Supérieure and how Meloponti comes third, Beauvoir comes second, and it's Simone Weil that comes first. And I wondered if there is a kind of neglected cohort of existentialists and who you think warrants our attention. Well, um, that's... uh, On the one hand, I I have to admit that Merleau-Ponty can't quite be seen as an existentialist. He's he's a phenomenologist, um, so I probably should say that. but, But having said that, yes, definitely, there are. And I so much wanted to put lots more people into the book. Um... There are some fascinating figures who really only get a slight look in, but who I think really repay more reading. I mean, the, some of the... Well, Gabriel Marcel, who is a Christian existentialist, which I'm, you know, I'm not. I'm an atheist existentialist like Sartre. So, um, and yet I, I absolutely love his way of writing about our experience of, of the body, of mystery. He's, he shares a lot of things with Meloponti. He also writes a lot about the body, um, He's, a fast, he's, he's, just, he's kind of a joy to read a lot of the time as well. And oh, some of the time. Not, none of them are a joy to read all of the time. <laughs> Except maybe Camus, but well, come on. But, um, Actually, one of the figures that you mention in your book, uh, who I think is particularly fascinating, Colin Wilson. Yeah. Um, now deceased. But I was thinking, since he comes from Leicester, if he mm. was still around, he'd be particularly angst-ridden right now. LAUGHTER <laughs> Um, for the he, football, he also for the football fans actually. in the audience, Claudio Ranieri has been sacked oh, uh, right. from the football club. Yes. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Owen um, <laughs> 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 Wilson is is a fascinating figure. I mean, he had a huge Im- impact. His book, he wrote a book called The Outsider in 1956, which made a huge splash. Was he was hailed because he was an extraordinary. He really was an outsider. He had come. He hadn't been through a classic education. He was working class. He was from the Midlands. He had a real attitude, but he was very. He was kind of like the angry young men era. It was very typical of that. Um, but he was just—he had this enormous energy for ideas. That was the good side. The bad side was that some of the ideas got a bit garbled, you know, as, as gradually emerged afterwards. But, um, but what, I think what was extraordinary about him was that he, he really caught the imagination of a generation. But he captured um, a time when people were... Suddenly, education was opening up. The ability to, to read, to encounter ideas, to encounter ideas from the continent was suddenly becoming something that was seen as being possibly accessible to all, and you didn't have to have a university education to do it. Ideas could be exciting. I think that was the big, the big thing that he was trying to communicate. And for that, I have quite a lot of sympathy with him. Um, he then um, sort of made that sympathy kind of hard to maintain because he did things like going around saying, well, of, of course, on the whole, I feel I am a genius, and you know, <laughs> the world will... Re- so he and at that point, the, um, the, mob st- really, the mob turned against him so the rest of his life was was uh, quite a, you know, he wrote more and more and more, partly to pay the bills, because apparently his his first huge sort of check that came in from the runaway success of The Outsider, he spent it all on classical records, yeah. tens of thousands of them, yeah. and then had to spend the rest of his life writing books about sex and the occult and anything else <laughs> he thought would, would sell um, to pay the, the bill. But anyway, yeah, that's all a bit of a digression, but I... I just I find him a, an interesting figure, partly for a personal reason actually, which is my father, who also comes from the Midlands, uh, read that book in 1956 when it came out. He also didn't have a university education. He hadn't encountered those kind of ideas before, and he was absolutely blown away by it. And it really changed his life. From then on, he he read. He uh, was you know he was interested. He realised that there was this whole dimension out there. So we need to think about English existentialism, don't we? That's our challenge. It, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a small but yeah. but interesting tradition. Interesting. Do we have any other com- any other comments for? Well, D- David Beckham's the other example of English existentialism. <laughs> yeah, existentialism yeah. as he yeah. as he calls it in slightly <laughs> narcissistic <laughs> way. Entirely but, other know. panel, maybe several panels. Yeah, um, uh, but Andy, should we get you to take the floor next? Yes, yeah, sure. Perfect. Thank yeah, you. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, I've got ten minutes. Uh, talk divides into two parts. We're going to talk about uh, the historical context to begin with, and then secondly, a bit more free-floating, and talk about Beckham and <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne, I think. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> I was a teenage existentialist, rather like Colin Wilson, uh, but a, the father of my best friend, an Irish guy, was convinced that I had sort of Nazi affiliations. He thought that I was the uh, offspring of some downed Luftwaffe officer in the Second World War. And he would go around, and the phrase of his that sticks in my mind now is, ah, you bombed the shite out of Romford. (laughs) So you did. And uh, in the light of that, I would like to point out that my personal fantasy is actually dating back to the Second World War, that my French would have been fluent enough to have been parachuted into occupied France, uh, where I would have passed myself off as a native, of course, while shooting the shit out of Fritz, of course, simultaneously. <laughs> I should point that out. 
Um, and it strikes me that the kind of counterfactual dramas uh, de nos jours are effectively a transposition of what it was actually like in France in the middle of the Second World War. So, you know, Nazis were, in fact, winning at that, that point. Um, <clears throat> in my fantasy, I fully expect, by the way, either to be betrayed by my comrades or, much more likely, that my indelible English accent would give me away as not really a, a native at all. So, so, therefore, I would expect to be tortured. And Sartre has some interesting things to say about torture. And um, because, of course, he's, he's, he is, and, of course, Camus more explicitly, part of the resistance. Uh, and their friends were getting rounded up, uh, dying, uh, some of them being tortured. And torture gets into being a nothingness. And he imagines a scene of someone who is strapped down, being tortured. He also draws on a book of Faulkner's, a novel of Faulkner's, in which a black man is being... Uh, tortured and then hanged. Uh, and he says, in the case of both those figures, you know, a resistant guy, who's, you know, being, getting the equivalent of waterboarding, then actually being drowned in a bath and so on, and then revived, um, or, you know, electrodes and, and so on, he says that you are still, although you've been captured by the Gestapo and you're being tortured, you are still technically free. That always, when I read that, that always seemed to me kind of mad as a definition of, of, of freedom. So one has to think rather carefully about that. But I was reading a book recently called The White Rabbit about this guy, Tommy Yo Thomas, who, who an English SOE agent, in fact, precisely my fancy alter ego, uh, parachuted in France and indeed duly captured, who survived torture. And he says, and this is precisely what Sartre says, so it gives you a kind of practical... Um, not exactly verification, but, yeah, exemplar of what Sartre seems to be talking about in a rather metaphysical way, that even though you're being tortured, you know you're going to kind of give in, that nevertheless, and this is both Tommy O. Thomas's point and Sartre, you can choose the moment at which you will finally cave in. So even in situations of tremendous duress, there's still the possibility of choice. May I say, contrary to my Irish friend's father, I'm always on the side of the guy in the bath, and I, so is existentialism. So existentialism in the middle of the Second World War was partly concerned with torture. It was also concerned with aesthetics. Now, when it comes to Nazi aesthetics, uh, it seems to me to be summarized by a particular painting, Ivo Saliger's painting, Judgment of Paris, uh, 1939, um, in which... Uh, Paris, uh, who in Saliger's version is a Nazi youth wearing lederhosen, uh, is choosing the perfect Nazi woman uh, who is, there are three naked women, uh, he chooses the willowy blonde, and the two dark-haired women, rejected, are already putting their, their kit back on. And this concern with archetypes seems to me to be quintessential in Nazi aesthetics. It partly harks back, as Judgment Paris suggests, to Greek mythology, to a concern with archetypes. Philosophy, I believe, begins with a critique of the Greek preoccupation with beauty. Socrates, the father of 
Western philosophy, uh, famously ugly, tries to make a case for ugliness in opposition to beauty. The natural inheritor of that position is, of course, Jean-Paul Sartre. We've already had a brilliant impersonation of Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, you know, summarising, he essentially looked like something hanging off the outside of Notre Dame, uh, you know, in a, in a good way. And um, he did describe himself, I quote, as an ugly bastard. And Simone de Beauvoir agreed with that assessment, moreover. Uh, in opposition to Albert Camus, of course, they met in 1943, um, a friendship made out of antitheticals. Uh, Sartre on the one hand, as it were, uh, an embodiment of the ugly. Uh, Camus, on the other hand, somewhat Bogartian. And uh, when a Vogue photographer pointed out to him, when he went to New York in 45, I think, oh, yeah, you look a bit like Humphrey Bogart, he, he made a point after that of wearing trench coats with the <laughs> collar turned up, which is rather cool. So they were rather, rather different, but they nevertheless shared in common, I think, if you have a look at, say, Being a Nothingness and The Rebel, I think they're both count, count as poems of a revolt. Against what? Everything, really, I suppose, but specifically against, I think, um, the archetypes with beauty, you could say. In, in a sense, they say it's okay to be ugly. The, uh, the story that occurs to me particularly is in words such, such sort of biography, ways he he, as a kid, he's known as the angel uh, because of his curly locks, uh, blonde curly no locks. He's then taken out for a rather harsh haircut. He comes back, and uh, his mother comes through the front. He's standing there, and his mother comes through the front door and sees him with the haircut, without the blonde locks anymore. <clears throat> and apparently, according to Sartre, takes one look at him, then runs up the stairs and throws herself on the bed, sobbing, because... This is like the opposite of a fairy tale in which he has been turned into a toad, so he says. Anyway, so he makes a, <clears throat> he makes a strong case for the ugly. So Sartre and Camus, the Lennon and McCartney of their day, doomed to split, of course, but nevertheless having so much in common. And in terms of the, the Nazism uh, question, uh, I'd just like to recall the end of Camus' The Plague in which he says... Uh, the bacillus never dies or disappears. So coming to the second part, yeah. Um, Sartre and Camus, yeah. I thought of uh, Sartre and Camus together as a form of cognitive dissonance when I was writing my book about them. I now like to sort of re re rephrase that and say it's a form of cognitive resonance and that you can use them to think with uh, and I sort of think of Sartre as more deconstructive, Camus as a little bit reconstructive. Okay, I started off thinking about, yeah, uh, Beck's essentialism uh, and David Beckham as an exemplar of existentialism. Someone then asked me to start talking about Beck's uh, existentialism, I Brexit <laughs> phenomenon, because it presumably it must have something to do with hell as other people, you know, Sartre's greatest one-liner. Um, I... Sort of thinking about that, I, I've sort of moved away from, from that idea. That, and, and thinking with Sartre and Camus, I, I'm inclined to think that the, the philosophy behind Brexit is, n is not the hell philosophy, but, but rather sort of a, a combination of nostalgia and over-optimism. In, indeed, 
transcendence, because that's my other theme, that, that one can think with Sartre and Camus in regard to the transcendent. They are concerned with the secular transcendental, I think. So therefore, naturally sceptical. Curiously, it struck, strikes me, I remember way back reading a, a rather good essay by A.J. How long have I got that? About a minute. What? One minute. Okay, cool. Uh, which critiqued the hell out of <laughs> Sartre. But I now sort of think that there's a kind of a, a natural continuum between logical positivism. And, uh, okay, so I'm going to, therefore, fast forward to sexual addiction <laughs> and end on that point. Ozzy Osbourne recently said that he was, you know, a sex addict, having been discovered with, you know, five starlets. Oh, yeah, I'm actually a sex addict. I need treatment. Um, existentialism is naturally kind of sceptical of the notion of addiction and the narrative of an engine driving you. It would simply say you make a collection of choices. They just happen to be bad choices and rather similar choices. Um, yeah, thinking, and, and so we need to get away from this kind of easy reliance, which I think is, you know, with us everywhere and I know I, I rely on it myself occasionally. Oh yeah, I'm an addict to this and that, which is just a failure of thinking, I think. Uh, and so therefore, as regard uh, sex addiction, I'd like to, you know, suggest an, a new uh, movement which would be known as sexit, I suppose, actually, or sexistentialism, possibly, uh, in which we in which uh, we cease that kind of reliance. But uh, just to end, then, to say, yeah, the thing that people often ask me about, okay, the, so the split between Sartre and Camus, yeah, what are the philosophical resonances? One of the reasons for it right from the beginning was a dispute over Sartre's girlfriend. He had wooed her and seduced her, but it took him about three years, and then Camus turned up to him about three minutes. To, and so there was a kind of jealousy. So that was one of the things. And suffice to say that it strikes me that one of the things about philosophers is they're very rarely philosophical. There's a, um, you quote, uh, I think, some terrible rogue of a journalist who says of uh, Beauvoir that she is the prettiest existentialism, existentialist you ever saw, and which is the kind of statement that makes you want to hurl a book across the room. But I, it, listening to you talk about the celebritification of existentialism, the appearance, the preoccupation with the prince, it's not necessarily... Well, by them, but also after the fact that Beauvoir is beautiful, that Camus is not attractive, uh, that um, Jean-Paul Sartre is not attractive, um, and also a kind of culture of poserism yeah. about yeah. it. I wonder if that's been to the detriment of the thought that there's been a kind of veneer of appearance and performance and French glamour mm. that's clouded or made opaque the things that are really troubling and wonderful about existentialist thought. Mm. It's a bold idea. I'd like to sort of say the exact opposite to that, actually. I thought And you might. say that... <laughs> I, I think this is the ex essence, actually, of existentialism. Just say the opposite of what the last person said. <laughs> uh, it's the no, that's the essence of philosophy in general. Okay, fine, yeah. <laughs> Reject what the last guy said. Uh, um, yeah, so, yeah, the point being that uh, I think, it, you know, if one thinks in terms of our current uh, preoccupation with appearance, and let's say social media in, in particular, um, I cast my mind back to 
Sartre and Camus roaming around the States it, shortly after the Second World War, when they were under surveillance, in fact, interestingly, by, by, by the FBI. Uh, the FBI had a certain amount of difficulty trying to track down Camus, I remember, because they got the idea that his name was not, in fact, Camus, but Canus. So they were looking for a guy called Canus for a long while. <laughs> They eventually found one, by the way. Anyway, that's another story. But uh, the, the point that, that someone like Sartre makes is that, and, you know, Camus with his obsession that have, you know, look good, uh, is that you expect to be under the gaze, that you cannot eliminate the, the gaze from, from philosophy or, or from uh, personal experience. So that, that there's a funny little story that, that Sartre has about and, and he actually welcomed surveillance, by the way, Sartre specifically. He felt rather, oh, good, the FBI asked me, thank, I'm glad. That means I exist, as it were, because someone has me under surveillance. And he, he, the funny little story that he tells in Being a Nothingness, of course, that, as you say, that you know, sex, is, sex is a present, so that he says he imagines himself in this kind of quasi-Freudian, sort of drama of looking through the keyhole into someone's bedroom to see what's going on in there. But then he says, of course, as I'm doing that, I thus keeping whoever's inside under surveillance, he realizes slightly queasily, of course, there's someone behind me keeping me under surveillance simultaneously. (laughs) So, uh, I don't know, I guess, you know, I wouldn't want to kind of eliminate that from, from the equation. Sarah, Stella, any thoughts? Well, I'll just, on that point, um, Sarah said earlier that uh, Beauvoir and Sartre were the only, the, only, uh, the only ones of that group of philosophers that we think of as existentialists who were prepared to say that they were existentialists. And I think they did that in a very strategic way. Mm-hmm. They decided that they would take on that mantle and, and they would use the glamour um, in order to get their voices listened to. So they, they, it's been called the deployment of privilege. They, they used the fact that they had become these celebrity figures to, to get things heard, to get people talking about political issues of the day, to, to throw their weight and their glamour behind yeah. political issues. No, that's interesting because I, it also coincided with the moment when they were becoming extremely politicised coming mm. out of the war. So it was, you know, anything that served the, yeah. the cause would be, yeah. including, you know, being famous and glamorous. Yeah, she says in her, in her um, autobiography, I think it, uh, I, I quote from mm. memory so poorly, um, in 1945 we decided to launch an existentialist offensive mm. It was the end of the war. It was the beginning of the existential mm. war, as it were. Yeah. Can, can I just check with you? So, because you said, you know, if you say I'm not an existentialist, therefore you are. So poor old Camus, who kept trying to say, no, I'm an absurdist, not an existentialist. I mean, he had to be an existentialist, of course. But, but so everyone who denies it, therefore, is it. Oh, no, I don't think I said that. Oh, okay, I wouldn't say sorry. That. Yeah. Um, no, it, they all, they, they mostly denied being... The interesting thing about Camus is that he denied that he was an existentialist. Yeah, yeah. And Simone de Beauvoir, and especially, but I think Sartre too, also denied that Camus was an existentialist. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty unanimous. We're gonna, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know if that proves that he wasn't one or was one or, or what. We're going to have a Spartacus moment where we all <laughs> declare that we're existentialists at the end of this session. But um, let's hand over to... Stella for our last speaker. Thank you. Well, 
I'm, I'd like to say something about um, the relationship between existentialism as it's represented by Beauvoir and Sartre, but mainly Beauvoir, the relationship between existentialism in that sense and academic philosophy. Uh, because, um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to just speak about Beauvoir. Uh, Beauvoir could have had a career as an academic, but she chose not to. And when you compare the, the living, you know, the vitality of existential thought with the aridity of academic philosophy, or when you compare existentialism out on the streets with academic philosophy, academic philosophy is always going to come off badly in that comparison. And Sarah has talked about the moment with the cocktails. And, and really, what it, that moment of excitement, I think it has to be understood as a contrast to the aridity and the irrelevance of what they were studying at university or what they had been studying at university. So it was a real reaction against academic philosophy. Um, and Beauvoir was asked uh, at one point to say something about the relationship between her philosophy and her life, and she said words to the effect of, I can't answer that question in the traditional way because there's no separation between philosophy and life. It's not, that, it's not that I have a set of ideas which I, uh, which I overlay on aspects of the social and political world. I see the world, I understand the world through philosophical eyes. You know, her, her, every, I, 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 I think about every feeling I have in a philosophical way. Um, and... As you, you've also mentioned Colin Wilson, for example, who, um, who could come to existentialism without having to go through the route of academic philosophy. There's something, there's something so attractive about existentialism because of this relation it has to everyday life um, and something so unattractive about forms of academic philosophy because of their, often their, their lack of relation to everyday life. Um, but on the other hand, uh, after all, Sartre and Beauvoir did receive university educations in philosophy. And it's possible that, uh, that, that we can achieve the ability to see the world through philosophical eyes with the aid of a university education in philosophy. I'm not saying that everybody has to have that but that that is what a university education in philosophy can do, especially if it includes some existentialism. <laughs> Actually, in, in, and often, in, in, uh, often universities start their first years with existentialism for precisely this reason, because it's, a, because it's a, a philosophy that so many young people especially can relate to. So existentialism exists as a sort of reprimand to institutionalised academic philosophy um, but there is a role for academic philosophy, there is a role for philosophy in the university um, I wanted to then say something about I wanted to explain why I think that existentialism which so many people recount uh, encountering in their teenage years is a philosophy of adolescence in the best sense, in the most positive sense. People often say that children are natural philosophers because they say, why, 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 all the time. 
But Beauvoir thought, and I agree with Beauvoir, that children are not natural philosophers. Beauvoir says in The Ethics of Ambiguity, an early book from 1947, children live in what she calls a serious world. That is, they live in a world in which they, the meanings and values of that world are given to them and they don't question the meanings and the values of, of that world for, for some time. Um, so children are not natural philosophers, but the awakening of philosophical consciousness happens during adolescence because that's the moment in which the young person starts to think, hang on a minute, my mum and dad might not be right about everything. Hang on a minute, why, are, why am I forced to follow these rules at school? Why do I have to wear this uniform? Why can't I walk on the grass? Um, and uh, whereas... Uh, adults like to ridicule and mock adolescents who say things like, I didn't ask to be born, or um, (laughs) uh, 12-year-olds who say, what's the point of life? Um, The adults who mock adolescents uh, for speaking like that are adults who have repressed their own philosophical consciousness because and the great one of the great things about Beauvoir's philosophy is that it dignifies these adolescent moments of questioning um, such that we should aspire to a perpetual adolescence we shouldn't despise adolescence we should aspire to a perpetual um, adolescence. These, this, this moment of questioning is the moment of the, of the loss of security. It's the moment at which the young person starts to think, oh my God, I am, I, nobody is going to tell me what the point of my life is. Nobody is, going to, uh, nobody is going to be able to explain to me why I'm here. Nobody is going to be able to explain to me why really I should believe one thing rather than another thing. And the as I said, the perpetuation of that moment of uh, the, of the uh, I was going to say the escape from security, but it doesn't feel like that, I don't think, very often. That's the sense in which existentialism is not easy. It's a very, very difficult moment for the adolescent um, who is very, very poorly served by the mocking adult. Um, the, the adolescent might genuinely feel despair at that moment. Uh, Hegel has a way of explaining to us why, why the development of forms of consciousness, go, why we go through moments of despair, because we think everything I've previously <coughs> believed might be wrong. Um, when we see that that moment is not just a negative moment, but is a positive moment as well, we can take the next step into thinking about what it means to take responsibility for the meanings and values that we live with. Taking that next step, I think, or at, it's, the, it's the role of the adult to hold the child and to help them, to, the adolescent, to take that next positive step into thinking about their responsibility for their own lives. And at a slightly higher level, it's perhaps the role of the, the philosophy in the institution to help young people and seekers of all ages to take that step into thinking, into seeing that not as, a, not as a moment in which to despair, but a moment in which to accept and assume that responsibility, as Beauvoir would say. Thank you.
I think what's so uh, arresting listening to you talk is that it's the position you're articulating or the account of philosophy you're describing is one that seems so counter to a current culture whereby philosophy, both in departments and in, in cultural life generally, I think, is intended or should ha- somehow be useful or should be functional in making you happy or provide answers or to help you have a better relationship. You know, the kind of culture of the philosophy for, for life. And I've always been struck by the, the idea that the best philosophy as you say, is the stuff that petrifies you, Mm. that makes you think, why the hell was I born and what do I do next? So as as much as I agree with that, also I'm anxious about making your first-year philosophy undergraduates read something like this because it's not necessarily going to enable them. It might also, if it really works, absolutely terrify them. Yeah, that's true, but it's probably also the case that there's no adolescent who hasn't already thought it. There's no young person who who hasn't been through that moment. When I was doing my A-levels, I did A-level English literature, and bizarrely we studied a novel by Samuel Butler called The Way of All Flesh. It seems to me extraordinary now that that was what we studied. And he, what, the one thing I remember from this novel, but I maybe remember it because the teacher uh, spent a lot of time impressing on us that it was an important moment in the novel. He's, he's a, he lives in a family, they're members of the Plymouth Brethren, and his father is very strict, and he and he he, he kind of worships his father. And they have a water feature in the garden, and he drives a nail into the pipe. Uh, I don't know why he does that. I don't know what he thinks is going to happen. But the the effect, of course, is that the water feature no longer works. He's terrified. His father is going to, uh, you know, his father is going to be so angry with him. His father notices that the water feature no longer works, and he says, "Oh, the 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 workman must have done that." And it's a moment of deep existential crisis for the young butler because he thinks, oh, my God, my father is fallible. Oh, he, my father can be wrong. Now, there can't be many young people who haven't thought something like, oh, my God, my father's a total idiot. <laughs> my, my mother is, you know, can be stupid. There, you know, my, there, there can't be many people who haven't gone through that moment. So... In a way, existential philosophy is, is, is moving us forward from that moment and saying, it's okay because it's not all bad. <laughs> yeah, I, want, I was really struck by your, your counterbalancing of the academic philosophy with the, um, the sort of the living philosophy, the, the urgent philosophy of adolescence when you're just starting to ask the questions. What I think is really interesting, though, is we haven't said very much this evening about Heidegger, um, who's, you know, some people think is, surprise, surprise, some people think is an existentialist, some people think he's not, and it's the usual thing about, is anybody really an existentialist? <laughs> Particularly applies to Heidegger, nobody's quite sure. But he is where a lot of these ideas came from. And the interesting thing is, it's, it's the most disturbing ideas, it's the big questions, it's, it's the question of um, why is there anything rather than nothing, which I think is mentioned in the brochure for, yeah. for this evening, um, why and what is my being that it's such a problem for me it's it's like my being is a big question that it's a big problem and this is something that's revealed to us not through thought but in certain moods and it's in an essay called what is um what is metaphysics particularly that he raises this but the interesting thing is this all comes out of a very academic philosophical tradition because heidegger completely went through the the academic tradition, and he taught philosophy in Freiburg University. Um, 
you know, I mean, the, you couldn't get more sort of scholastic than, than Heidegger. And on the other hand, he's, he's the one who planted a lot of these great questions. He is the source of a lot of this. And I think that the same thing applies really to, to Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir, that as you said, absolutely, and I agree, that they had been through the education system, but also that even in the work that they continued to do, they were constantly referring back to Hegel, to Kant, to you know, all of the kind of philosophical greats. And to me, this highlights the thing of it's not a kind of academic philosophy bad, you know, living philosophy good. I think that where the real, the real excitement happens is in that encounter between the two, but that it can happen within a university situation as much as outside and I, I yeah so just that's really just sort of in off the back of what you were saying I totally agree with it but I think sure, it's, uh, I don't know if I can mention one thing that I, I sort of imagine a lot of people in the audience m- might, might be thinking is that we perhaps we've omitted the word death so far because yeah. it strikes me that talking about existentialism and living philosophy we forget that it's very much preoccupied with death particularly Heidegger again is yeah. kind of being towards death isn't it yeah of course yeah. That, that's right mm. and Camus, of mm. course, the first sentence of one of his books, this essay, uh, is, um, you know, the first question of philosophy is, is mm. suicide. And um, I do think that's something we might care to address, but the idea of, you know, taking, philosoph- uh, taking responsibility not only for your life, but for your own death. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I recently put forward the proposition that, uh, thinking along those lines, that uh, prisoners who are sent, given a long-term sentence for murder, for example, should in fact be given a choice. They should not be given a sentence as such. They should be given the option of what I was calling, not only perhaps a long-term sentence, but also what I was calling consensual, consensual execution, mm. which would be a form of assisted dying. So it seems to me that existential is pro-assisted dying. It was the case, wasn't there, of uh, Gary Gilmore, who yeah. insisted on being executed? The firing squad, specifically. Yeah, insisted yeah. on a firing squad, but I think also, didn't he insist on the execution, oh, too? Yeah, sure. yeah. No, I... On the fact of being uh, executed. If I remember... Does anybody know? Yeah. No, okay. He had a menu of ways of being executed, I think, actually, and he preferred the, the no, firing no, I squad. I thought he was, he was going in saying, no, no, I want to die, I right. want to die, which kind of raises... A lot of yeah. problematic questions I in the legal system. I think about the judge agreed with him. Can you be saying? He should. I jotted down something um, on death it, with a slightly quivering pen because it was so moving. It was Beauvoir talking about Sartre after his death, where she says, His death does separate mm. us. My death will not bring us together again. That is how things are, which I thought of immediately when you were talking, Stella, about the kind of bleak pragmatism that you learn from existentialism but I also thought about Sartre saying of Camus at the end he was probably my last friend and there is an idea of friendship I think in this this culture of these existentialists even though Camus and Sartre are bickering and estranged there is a a way in which friendship and the writing to even to Heidegger Heidegger and Arendt there is a way in which they're writing to and for each other as well, that's sustaining this work and thought. Yes, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a lovely thing in his obituary of, of Camus, that, which I believe is true, what, whatever one thinks about the question of friendship, that he would always ask himself, I wonder what Camus is thinking about this right now. And I think the opposite was true as well. Yeah. Right, let's open out to the floor, because I'm sure you're itching. There is a question at the very front and one at the back as well. Any others? Because I'd like to take three in a row if I can. And one in the middle over there. Great. 
Thanks very much, all of you. You were great. I just want to hit on the point of death. You mentioned that um, after the bombing of Nagasaki, the world had to find a sort of collective desire to exist. We now face another very interesting moment. Um, we are almost becoming another species. And by this I'm talking about transhumanism. As we face the possibility of perpetually postponing death, how will that affect future trends in existential philosophy? Question back. Who was that? Question, yes. Hi, I wanted to ask um, Sartre said that life is a useless passion, and Camus went on to say that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. I sometimes feel like I fall into bouts of nihilism where. <laughs> I feel like existentialism does not excuse anyone from anything. It actually obliges everybody to everything. And so you have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson who have stated that philosophers are useless and that we're too busy questioning whether the road exists. We can't even cross it. So I find myself sometimes, uh, you know, we, we are all clinging on to the ephemeral. And in that sense, I do find myself feeling doubtful about the intensity of uh, existential feelings that I do experience. Thank you. And there's a question over there. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious about what you think the space is in existentialism for the normative still. Because it seems like on the one hand, existentialism wants to deconstruct the ideas of um, objective duties or things that you have to adhere to. But at the same time, ideas like authenticity and responsibility seem to be sneaking a little bit of the normative back in. Um, and if the principal method is phenomenology, which is descriptive, how can it kind of account for this, this binding you ought or must, even if it's in a personal sense? Okay. So how, how do you so there, were, to... there was a question about transcending death, <laughs> how philosophy will help us. And there was a question about the dizziness of nihilism and uh, the obligations that existentialism makes rather than excusing. And this question was slightly similar about reintroducing the normative, how that sneaks into existentialism and authenticity. Well, I might just take that last one, if, if, I mean, because um, I think that is an absolutely classic question which the existentialist, or Sartre especially, kind of wrestled with. Well, he didn't wrestle with it. That's part of the problem. He promised. <laughs> At the end of being a nothingness, he said, well, this is volume one. I promise you a further volume which will solve the problem of existentialist ethics. And surprisingly, it never appeared because, you know, for several reasons, Sartre was a great one for not finishing things. That's partly because his thought was always moving on to something else, which kind of worked against what he'd already said in the first part. And I, really, I, I think this kind of solution to that mystery for him was instead of ethics, ethical questions considered in an individual way, as in what are my duties, he became interested in seeing much more a sense of um, the, the commitment. It's like the commitment that we have as a fundamental thing to um, working for the, the greater good, working with other people, working to improve the lives of other people in the long term, short term, whatever it is, um, and working in solidarity with, with the group. And this became... Um, of course, led him into all sorts of tangles with various forms of Marxism, became very complicated for him. But um, it's almost as if his, his kind of leap into the ethical was so, so extreme, it almost wiped out individual ethics and became about this grand topic of, you know, how do we all work together to make the world that we want to make? And 
um, he never really satisfactorily came to a solution to that. I think there, there really is a, a problem with ethics in that, uh, with existentialist ethics in that, you know, it, by its very nature, it doesn't give an answer. It doesn't give a basis for um, w- why you should do certain things and not others because it all puts it back on your freedom, whether it's socially, you know, in, in a situation of solidarity with others or not, to, to make your own mind up and take responsibility for what you do. But, I mean, even in um, his early, his lecture after the war, Existentialism is a Humanism, um, where he, he kind of addressed the, the, that kind of question of, you know, how do you tell somebody what they ought to be doing? And, you know, concluded, really, you can't, it's up to you. But the, the coda to that is, and it really matters. Like, and it's not just like, oh, do what you like. It's, no, do what you like, take responsibility for your decision because it really, really matters that you, what you do. And that's like, it's not easy, but I think that's the, the best answer that existentialism can come up with. I mean, regarding the normative, I, I take existentialism to be a critique of Durkheim, in fact, Durkheim's concept of anomie, normlessness, uh, Durkheim says, you know, this is to be avoided at all costs. As far as I can work out existentialism, is advocates, one aspires to a condition of normlessness, the, the anomic individual. Yeah, the useless passion, of course, uh, that is philosophy in a nutshell. As Wittgenstein says, if you want to become a philosopher, uh, be a car mechanic, don't read philosophy. Yeah, the transhuman. Uh, I think how it will change philosophy is, uh, you know, longer lives will become much more concerned with the concept of uh, boredom. Uh, it's going to become preeminent. Uh, and, of course, choosing death as an option on a menu rather than something that is inescapable. Mm. I'll just say something about death. I'm not sure, actually, that we can we can think about death now without thinking about ageing as well. And I think that that I mean you talked about postponing death, or can there be more to it because it's not really any longer just about postponing it; it's about actually how ageing can and actually transcending our own meditations as a species. I think that an existentialist like Beauvoir would would see this this desire as a as a desire that had something of the, of bad faith about it um, because of because of the I mean the, the I, I was thinking that you were you might be referring to um, people who get their heads cryogenically frozen. <laughs> absolutely absurd. Um, so everyone knows that there will be mush when they're um, thawed, um, and that—that's a form. That's a really extreme form of bad faith and inability to ex- accept the truth. Yeah. Um, but when, but Beauvoir's last book was called Old Age, um, and her conclusion. Her conclusions really. Well, there are many conclusions there. Um, and I have to say I don't agree with what she says about old age, but what I do agree with is the way is the, uh, the conclusion that she comes to, which is that one can't speak about old age in general because being old and rich is very, very, very different to being old and poor. And she's writing at a time when a lot of, a lot of the old people that she's talking about would not have 
would not be supported by a welfare state and wouldn't have you know wouldn't have pensions and so on so I think that the development of Beauvoir's thought uh, away from the individualism of the early work towards the more political and social work actually puts the puts the political and the social before the individual such that questions these questions have to be addressed in a different way and and the the question of aging and whether one can whether one can die a good death is a social question for us now it's it's whether there whether there is care for us when we die it's it's not it's it it's moved away from the kind of ancient greek you know idea of the good death to the to an idea that uh, you won't that will be out of your hands if you're poor this is a good moment to recommend stella's reader on Beauvoir, because actually the last section is on mm. uh, Beauvoir on old age, and it really compels you to want to go away and read that if you haven't read it already. Um, so that's really well summarised in the book. So more questions. There's a question here from the gentleman there. Um, uh, the gentleman there, uh, the gentleman there, and the gentleman at the front there. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, I'm wondering about the the expression of existentialist thought in, in the arts, and I, I was wondering if you could, if if each of you could name one or two examples, um, whether it be in film or um, or in the theatre, which, and if the thread continues to exist in 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 France, you know, through the late forties into the what in 1968 and even t- in the present day I mean uh, Beckett R- Samuel Beckett of course was was living in Paris at the time but didn't seem to have close relations with the um, with the thinkers but of course his work is is I would think would be a, a quintessence of ec- existentialist thought question over there Ah, yes. Um, could I follow up the point made on aging that um, it it occurs to me that there could be a very practical application now, which perhaps there wasn't so much before with regard to existentialism, particularly with regard to meaningful existence, uh, with uh, the number of people now who have dementia and have had a, a, a loss of personal memory. Uh, and so for the carers and for them... There's the the big question, practical question, as to how far they can continue a meaningful existence, uh, and what memories perhaps they have still have, which constitute a meaningful ex- uh, existence. And that seems a practical application of existentialism. And I wonder what the panel think of that. Great question. And mm. one at the front. Yes. The mic's just coming to you. Thank you. Um, I, I was interested in your remarks, Shahida, about how philosophy um, doesn't necessarily need to be useful. Um, and I, I guess in recent years there's been a, a lot of growth in, in, in kind of making the social sciences, including philosophy, accessible and, and popular. So I'm an economist and there's been a lot of popular economics books. And, and maybe in, uh, in philosophy, things like Jules Evans' book about you know, philosophy for, for, for life. And I, I just wonder whether with the problem with existentialism is, is that it's neither sufficiently intelligible or prescriptive ever to be very popular. 
I mean, Stoicism really kind of lends itself to, you know, it sort of almost borders into the realms of philosophy, uh, of therapy, I'm sorry. So I, I just wonder whether there's ever going to be a, a kind of mass market for, uh, uh, amongst lay people for existentialism. Well, I think existentialism has been the most popular philosophy amongst lay audiences. You know, there's never been a, you know, I, I think it really has. A, um, I mean, you know, t- in the good old days, uh, when, <laughs> when philosophers were more respected and were public figures, uh, you know, amongst the intelligentsia, for example, people would read Kant in Germany. But think that, that existentialism was probably the only modern philosophy which has been read by non-intellectuals. I think it's probably the only philosophy that has been parodied by... Monty Python, you know, which and to you know, in response to the question about um, existentialism in the arts, I was thinking, well, there's Hancock's film, The Rebel, mm. and the emphaticalist, you know, so it would have to be sufficiently well known in the United States of America and England for people to understand what Tony, who Tony Hancock was parodying when he put on a black turtle neck. There's also um, Funny Face. Have you yes. seen that with Audrey Hepburn? Yes who goes off to Paris and, and goes and sort of haunts one of the, um, one of the underground dives yes. and looking for a famous philosopher who's known to hang out yes. there, whose, whose name is uh, Jean-Marie Partre, Partre or something <laughs> yes. like that. And, um, and while there, she does a wild existentialist dance on the dance floor. And, uh, but then she goes off and marries Fred Astaire, who's about 40 years older than her. <laughs> she probably thought it was coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the question of dementia actually is a very extremely challenging one because it might it might be not that well there's the but there's the point of practical ac- application but there's the limit of existential philosophy because it's a philosophy of consciousness and a philosophy of the self and you know how can it you know it it, it poses a, a serious objection to the to the usefulness of, of existentialism beyond a certain point. But I think that gentleman was saying something about how at a moment of dereliction, which dementia can be, that you might ask that question, why am I here? Not just why am I in this place, but why am I here? That in a way it might realise those questions for you. Yeah, which I think I, is really I, arresting. I agree with you entirely. I mean, if I can provide an example, uh, an antithetical example of uh, existentialism in, in the arts, the, the opposite would, of course, be um, the cartoon Popeye. Uh, Popeye was famously says, you know, I am what I am, that's all what I am. And I, I take, it, take it that that's a critique of the existential attitude because Sartre, of course, says, I am not what I am. And it strikes me that it, it, it is a possibility that the existential attitude, and I saw this in my own mother, my late mother, uh, who suffered from dementia, that the existential begins with dementia, one may say, because that is precisely where you lose the sense of identity. And you're asking yourself the question, okay, who, not only who are you, which is addressed to me quite a lot, but... Uh, you know, what am I? And what am I supposed to be doing here exactly anyway? And, and so there's a kind of philosophical aspect, not that I'm recommending dementia, of course, but there's an incredible kind of crazy philosophical aspect to, to dementia, which is quite striking, I think. It's very interesting that we've been talking about the very young and the very old. I think that's rather interesting. Well, there's also, yes, I mean, actually, that, that I was about to say something else, but that's taken me off on another tangent, which is um, that it's... It, it, 
there's, it's very interesting. Philosophers very rarely write about babies and children and what it is to be a baby and, and a child and how we, we're not born as perfect little sort of Cartesian you know, philosophers kind of sitting like Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am. That's not where yes. human experience begins. Um, in fact, in the early stages, you don't really distinguish yourself from your environment at all, do you? And then it gradually you begin to separate yourself. Um, the person who particularly, I think, writes beautifully about that, um, above all, is, is Merleau-Ponty, who, wrote, who was himself, in fact, a professor of child psychology at the Sorbonne, as well as being a philosophy professor. And one of the things I think emerges from reading this kind of philosophy is that it raises the same, the same question about the borders of conscious experience, the borders of conscious human experience, the areas of it that are not just crystal clear rational consciousness and it, it reminds us that actually very little of human experience is that kind of crystal clear rational consciousness anyway philosophy aspires to being that but it goes against the grain of what most human experience is um, just on the d- dementia question which I thought was was a really interesting question and so much that kind of comes to mind thinking about that um, I just wanted to put slightly at a tangent that one of the things I found very um, well, a, a moving and a revelation, Iris Murdoch, towards the end of her life, was trying to write a book about Heidegger when she was suffering from dementia. She was fascinated by Heidegger. She had been a great kind of early adopter of existentialism, influenced by Sartre, who bl- you know, blew her socks off when she first met him in Brussels when she was working for the uh, refugee resettlement um, thing after the war. But... Um, she then went off existentialism completely, but she remained quite fascinated by Heidegger and wanted to write about him. And right at the end of her life, she, there's an unfinished manuscript, which is at the University of Kingston, I think, or, yeah, your base, where they have her papers, which is really fascinating, where she's try, you know, trying to sort of make sense of Heidegger's vision of... Uh, one of the things that most appeals to her in Heidegger is he has this, in his late work, way of describing human, what we might call human consciousness, but he doesn't want to call it that, as, as a kind of clearing, a clearing in a forest, like the images of a sort of, you know, there's a, a deep, dark forest and there's just a, a little space that opens up there where the light kind of angles through and, and things come out into the open. Things are, they can be experienced, um, is, is with my interpretation of it and hers. And she found that the kind of the, the one, really the one thing in Heidegger that she thought is really worth hanging on to was that. It's a very beautiful image. And if, uh, I like it because it isn't a kind of all or nothing. It isn't like you're either conscious or you're not, which is a bit more like what Sartre is inclined to say. There's like, there's, it's all or nothing. It is just, there's more, you know, there's more or less of this light filtering through. And, and that is what human experience is. But we become more aware of it in the borders, in the kind of borderlands of, of the everyday experience. And I guess that that's some of what can happen as you're as you're dealing with dementia, perhaps that would be it. So, yeah, I just wanted to sort of come back on that. Thanks. Any more questions? Okay, one. Okay, two. Uh, one up there. One in the third row. Two for the time being. Okay. Hi. Um, I just have a curiosity. In um, All Men Are Mortal, um, the Simone de Beauvoir book, um, the, the character, main character, Raymond Fosca, is always... He wakes after love all the times, you know, despite the fact that he's bored about uh, 800 years' existence. And in the end, he dances, like, I mean, probably you know how he dances. What does it actually mean, love, at that point? Is it a hope? Is it a delusion? What is love for these people? 
Um, I was just wondering, because you said that adolescence you go into philosophy, whether you thought that philosophy, philosophy was a natural thing that came with human existence, or whether existentialism actually means that nothing can be natural since you're in control of your purpose and your life. Good luck with the first question. Is love a hope or an illusion? What is love in uh, Beauvoir's novel? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think I can answer that. There is a, there's a book that came out last year called Existentialism and Romantic Love by Sky Cleary. That might help with that. I'll just put, the, put a book recommendation in there. Um, I think, I mean, they, they she... Simone de Beauvoir writes about love and desire. I mean, and so does Sartre. I think the the sense of, of the complexity of what's involved in, in desire is abs- is brilliantly analysed by both of them. I, I really enjoy both of their analysis of that because it kind of captures just why it's yeah, it's not straightforward and it's not everything is as it seems and, mm. and a lot of it is about how you what you yourself are sort of how you think you're presenting yourself, how you think you're being seen by the other person or what the other person wants for you. You want, Sartre has this bit of sort of, you want the other person to accept and, and delight in every aspect of everything that you do as if none of it could ever be different. And it just, that you are essentially that way and you, it's wonderful that you're essentially that way. And there's several things wrong with that, but first of all, n- not going to happen. <laughs> and secondly, um, that's bad faith because no, you know, no human being is ever just essentially the, the thing that they are. So it's a kind of impossible, it's a useless passion, I guess, like everything else. It's funny Sarah should mention Sky Cleary, because uh, I tried to go to a paper of hers that she was giving in Brooklyn recently, and this is where it works in Brooklyn. She was giving it at 1.30 a.m. <laughs> and being Brooklyn, I didn't get there till 3 a.m., so I'd missed it, and she'd already gone home, in fact, actually. And she was talking about Polly Amory, and uh, I must try and track her down one of these days, arrive at 1.30 the next time and find out what the hell polyamory is all about. But I suspect it's quite well expressed by um, Camus and Sartre. And uh, Camus, of course, specifically speaks about what he calls donduanism, which, uh, which he equates with the absurd. But I, I think that to some extent, both certainly Sartre and, and Beauvoir refer back to the, one of my favourite philosophers, Charles Fourier, uh, one of the so-called utopian socialists. And uh, what Fourier, uh, and, and they to some extent um, believe that they, these are the pivotal, don't they actually, that, that um, Sartre and, and Beauvoir say in, in amidst their, their pluralistic love lives that you, uh, Sartre, or you Beauvoir, are my pivotal, which is, which is where they take from Fourier. But it seems to me that... Uh, fundamentally, love has to be seen as a kind of critique of Fourier. Fourier says that the point about the ideal society of the future, which he calls the phalanstery, is to satisfy our passions. That the trouble with civilization is frustration. The point about the ideal uh, society of the future, there won't be any frustration. All passions will be satisfied. If I've understood existentialism, Correctly, it is that there will always be an asymmetry between demand and supply. And perhaps that is where love arises, that it is the sort of secular, transcendental attempt to fill that 
to fill that void, fill that asymmetry. I wonder if that last question about um, uh, existentialism as natural or not might have to wait. Um, and it's nice to end with love, isn't it? I thought we might end also with um, apparently a, a, a photo <coughs> caption of Sartre in a 1945 edition of Time, which goes, philosopher Sartre, women swooned. Um, I'm not expecting you to swoon, but it would be lovely <laughs> if you gave our speakers a round of applause. So thank you.